understand, you know who Carlos Captain is. He is a professor at David Lipscomb University, and we invited him to come and teach this weekend. Uh, he, it's, a, it's been a great blessing uh, for him to be here. There is, a, if you were around this weekend, you noticed we had an incident yesterday. Uh, Carlos, uh, he ducked out for a while while the kids all went sledding, and he actually uh, went to the gym. And there were some ladies that were going into the gym, and this big grizzly bear just came out of the bushes right next to the gym. And he got, uh, he fought that thing, and then I, when I showed up, he, he had the thing in a headlock, and he was biting and all that kind of stuff. But it, it, it got him a few times, and so he had to go to the hospital last night and, uh, and actually get some healing up. Actually, can I tell him a story? Yeah. Or are you going to tell him a story? He tripped on a mat at the uh, workout gym, and... 13 stitches and a fractured arm later, uh, uh, Craig Ford pinched it last night and did the teaching session last night. But Carlos has said, I'm, I'm going this morning. I'm on. And so he's here to share with us. Uh, for you kids, for, for the adults that are here, part of, the reason, part of the reason we invited Carlos to be here is that Carlos has a deep faith and he has a great amount of wisdom to share with us. And he's done that this weekend. And come on up and continue to share with us today. Thank you. Well, the hero story is actually the true one. <laughs> no, not really. But I'm so thankful to Chris and uh, Sylvia for their wonderful hospitality last night. And I couldn't have made it without you, Chris, there at the hospital. And uh, Sylvia is regulating my pain meds today. So um, I'm very thankful for that. But I'm on, I'm on good pain meds. I'm not on the pain meds that, you know, take my brain function away, you know, so uh, I, I am responsible for what I say today, only me being responsible for it. Now, one thing we must do before we get started, I cannot leave here without, now I don't take selfies, I don't do selfies, um, because I don't do them very well, okay, but I want us to get a groupie, is that what you call it? Okay. Okay, y'all ready? Okay, I'm not going to get everybody, but I'm going to try. There we go. Oh, I'm turning it the wrong way. Okay, there we go. So on the count of three, let's all wave and smile and that kind of thing. Okay, you ready? Well, wait a minute. i got to get myself in there. Okay, I'm still not good at groupies. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. One, two, three. Good. All right. That's great. I want to be careful. Anyway, my wife is always jealous when I get back from Montana because she's never been able to come to Montana. Well, she gets to come this summer to the encampment, and we are so looking forward to that. That's going to be great. But um, anyway, I have lots of stories of Montana, you know. And this is probably going to top them all this weekend. <laughs> but um, anyway, I do feel uh, very fine. I feel great and um, happy that uh, it could have been a lot worse. You know, like, you know, there are a whole lot of things that could have made it worse. But uh, nonetheless, I'm able to get up and out, and I'm grateful for that. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 eventually, so go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 12. 
We'll also flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been talking about spiritual growth. And I'm going to suggest in this lesson that in order for us to grow spiritually, we have to think about activating the gifts of the Spirit within us and within the body. We have to think about that because it, it is one of the major testimonies relative to the work of the Spirit of God in growing us that you find in the New Testament. Have you ever, you ever thought, I wish we could go back to what it was like in the year 20-whatever? Or for some of you, I know it would be 19-whatever. Okay? All right, now some of you are really shaking your heads there, okay? Because we got young folks and older folks and that kind of thing in here, all right? Um, well, I was born in 1959. I graduated in 1977 from Mayfield High School. And I have to admit, I mean, if I could go back and just live a little portion of 1977, it would be so much fun. I was driving my Dodge Dart, and some of you are going to remember that. Big old 318 V8 engine in there, you know, dark brown with a white vinyl top, you know. But I bought that car because Dad chose it for me, drove it up in the driveway and said, here's your car. Even though I had to pay for it, you know, Dad chose it. But that was a fun year. It's when I graduated high school, started college, you know, and you know, it, 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 life was ahead of me. It was so exciting, that kind of thing. Well, most of us have a year, you know, that we kind of look back on, and it was just really fun. It's not a matter of being, you know, like we've got to go back to that period of our life, like we want to in that respect. It's just a fun, nostalgic time when we look back on a period where it was really good. But here's the deal. I'm doubting any of us are going to say at any point in our lives, I wish we could go back to 2020. <laughs> now, 2020 wasn't all that bad in some ways. I mean, there were some things about 2020 I really enjoyed. I enjoyed my 22-step commute versus my 25-minute commute. I mean, that, that was definitely something that I enjoyed. And and I enjoyed being with each other. We, we were kind of by ourselves at our home there in Memphis. And, you know, she got laid off because she does home health. And she couldn't make a lot of home health visits. And I got to do my work from home and all that was good. But there was a whole lot about 2020 that was just convulsive for our nation. And who would want to relive that? Well, you know, one of the things about that year is that, and then and, and part of the recovery still, part of the recovery still, is that churches are still looking for the reset button from COVID, from that time. And, and there was, during that, during that period, there's what I call the great reinvestment that occurred among a lot of church members. You know, if you're away from a church that you've been fellowshipping with for a number of years, and then several weeks go by, and then several months go by, that you're not able to worship and, and gather in quite the same way. You can't enjoy the discipline of gathering in quite the same way, because there were a lot of questions relative to that, weren't there? And, and, and who really knew? I mean, who really understood? I mean, should you, should you wear a mask? Should you not? When you wear a mask, can you get together? If you distance yourself six feet apart, or can you not get in the same building with someone because you're gonna, you know, you're gonna catch the disease? Is coming to worship gonna be a super spreader? You know, and boy, elders trying to make decisions along those lines was really tough. 
In fact, the one word that I heard elders use to describe what it was like, the, the word I heard most often when elders described what 2020 was like was brutal. <laughs> it, was just, it was really hard during that time. But what happened again was that you know, it, it, we were gone for such a long period of time that we reinvested in other things. Reinvested in family, reinvested in our children, reinvested in other activities, maybe a hobby that we brought, brought upon ourselves. And so when 2021 and 2022 came around and we could start gathering again, it was hard to recapture that same energy. And the number is that, generally speaking, only about 60 to 70% of those who had attended before attended regularly after COVID. On a nationwide scale, that's kind of what it is. Now, years may have been different by some percentage points or whatever, but there was still a kind of great reinvestment. And part of the difficulty now is that it's hard for many of our churches to get back to what was kind of that normal in 2019. And they're realizing they can't really regard 2019 as their baseline of what the congregation really was or is. They kind of have to look at 2022 as the new baseline of congregational life. But part of that is, and I've heard this almost universally, is that people are not involved to the same extent they were in congregational life. Now, in some smaller congregations, that may be different, because smaller congregations depend on everybody to to get things done. And if somebody doesn't do something, there's a whole lot that doesn't get done, because it depends on one or two people, and everybody has to participate in that way. But even if you haven't experienced that the great reset and the, the great reinvestment, there is still an awful lot about this period in which we are engaged right now where we would benefit a great deal if people would just engage their gifts, the gifts of the Spirit of God in what we call involvement or however we want to put it, a matter of stewardship, but just investing our gifts. In fact, Usually, in Paul's letters, it's underscored as one of the major expressions or the major barometers of spirituality. And you find it in several places. Romans chapter 12, for example. In what we see is kind of a transition from Paul's discussion in Romans 1 through 11 about the great and wonderful plan of God to bring Jew and Gentile together under one gospel when he finally gets to his section that we call the imperative section in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, where he says in verse 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, which he has just described in 11 verses, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then the first specific application, the first specific application after that is the use of gifts. He says, verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you, just as each of you has 
one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is in serving, let him serve. If it is in teaching, let him teach. If it is in encouraging, let him encourage. If it is in contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is in leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's in showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Whatever gift you have, use it for the sake of the body. To build up the body of Christ. Then there's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Probably the longest one discussion in the New Testament about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the major application of walking with the Spirit that Paul outlines is, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, the exercise of our gifts. Like over in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says it this way. He says <clears throat> that, let me find verse 24, my glasses aren't working as well because they busted and they had to be put back together and they're situated differently on my nose. So you may have to give me, because I've got this little thing right here. No, I'm not being assimilated by the Borg. You know, I know it kind of looks like it, but I'm not. I just have to, sometimes I have to look a little closer to see things. Verse 24, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then he says, in, But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there not no division in the body, but its parts should be, have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There's no lesser part in the body of Christ. And he says, You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God is a portion. First of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with the gifts of administration, those with speaking in different tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then he begins to talk about love. And then in chapter 14, activating the gifts of prophecy and teaching. It's just full of wonderful insight in the whole idea of our using our gifts. Now I could say the same thing about the book of Ephesians that when Paul gets to the practical section of the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, one of the first applications he gives us beyond unity is the idea of each of the, each member of the body exercising its capability for the maturing and upbuilding of the body of Christ. Same thing over in 1 Peter chapter 4 to a group of beleaguered Christians who are being marginalized and persecuted. When he gets to chapter 4, he says, whatever gift you have, use it according to the power of God. Now, each of us understands that. Each of us understands that intuitively. That using our gifts is a significant part of our maturing in the faith. Right? Each of us understands that. Well... What can happen, though? A few things can happen relative to our gifts. Sometimes a part of the body can atrophy, right? Because of its lack of use. And sometimes we can allow discouragement or something of that nature to set in a bad experience with a church. Whatever it might be, it kind of sets in and we sit on our gifts for a period of time 
And it becomes increasingly more difficult as we ruminate over how we re-engage. Atrophy has a tendency to work its way into our hearts to where even sometimes when we want to re-engage a gift after we've left it for a while, it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly where to fit that in. There are a lot of things that can happen that can make the exercise of our gifts a challenge for us. But every time that the Apostle Paul comes around to it or that Peter comes around to it, they stress its great importance. Here's the idea. You cannot grow into the image of Jesus unless you use your gift as a member of his body for the purpose of upbuilding the body of Christ. That's the route to growth. But how do you do that? How do you do it? How do you use your gifts? Well, let me suggest at least six pathways to gift usage. This is what I've set up. Here's where I want us to go with it. These are six pathways to the use of your gift. Number one, serve first the need of the body. Serve first the need of the body of Christ. I say, uh, here's the way I put it sometimes. I think there's a difference between need-oriented ministry and sometimes gift-oriented ministry. Sometimes you don't even know you have a gift until there's a need in the body of Christ and you just answer that need and God allows a gift to emerge. Because there's not necessarily a direct correlation between your spiritual gift and something you enjoy doing. That's one of the dangers of spiritual gifts inventories. You ever taken a spiritual gift inventory looking around here? Okay, I'm seeing some nods. Some of you taking spiritual gifts inventories. I've taken spiritual gifts inventories a few times, and they kind of nail me sometimes, but other times they don't. But you know how it is that every time people, you have a group of people taking those inventories, the most obnoxious person in the room is always going to have the gift of prophecy. You know, because you're self-designating what you think your gift is based upon what you enjoy contributing to the body. But ask the apostles themselves as to whether their gifts necessarily led to joyful excursions and happy experiences. Just ask the apostle Paul about the use of his gift. Ask Moses about whether the use of his gift left, led him to a number of happy experiences. Can you imagine what it was like to confront the ruler of the world, Pharaoh, like he did? I mean, he complained about it at the beginning, didn't he? I would have complained about that, you know. So there's not necessarily a correlation between what you would choose to do for the body and the way the body actually needs you. And it may not even be any direct correlation between a spiritual gift and your natural talents. Think about that for just a moment. When I, when I became a Christian at the age of 17, which is a, it's a really cool story. I won't go into that story, but everybody has a story, right? Well, I have a story. It's a really cool story. I love that story. But not long after I became a Christian, I let my minister, who was also my mentor, know that 
I was thinking about doing a little preaching. And, and so you may have heard me tell this story before, but anyway, some of you who have heard me speak, I, I love to tell the story, so you may have already heard me tell it. But, so, he, I mean, he, he arranged for several people in my church to ask me to preach at different places. My preacher did. He just kind of arranged it on his own. Well, John Hoover, you know, he was even shorter than I was. And so one Sunday night after services, Jimmy Puckett, who was one of the deacons at my church, also had been my baseball coach and my Sunday school teacher and that kind of thing. He had some authority in my life. He came and he put Burton Conference commentary in a map in my hand and said, this church needs a preacher. And I told him, you'd be there next Sunday. And so I went to the Barlow Church in western Kentucky. And I preached a really bad sermon that day. It was really bad. I mean, I remember the actual sermon. It was Payday Sunday, the story of Ahab and Jezebel. I stole the sermon outline from a book by Leroy Brownlow entitled Seed for the Sower, which was a collection of sermon outlines. And I got up and I delivered that sermon and I used his words. I mean, I didn't know how to preach. I didn't know a thing about preaching. I was 17 years old, midway through my junior year in high school. I had long hippie hair and I was wearing a leisure suit. And got up there and, and did my best and preached the sermon. But it was one of those outlines that had stop here. You know, raise your voice here. You know, exercise display emotion here. You know, something along those lines. And I got through preaching it. And it was a really bad sermon. I mean, I found out later on it had been preached by Robert G. Lee, the prolific preacher of the Bellevue Baptist Church in, in Memphis, Tennessee, many years before that. And Brownlow borrowed it from him and put it in his sermon outline book. Later on, I listened to the actual LP, the long play album, of, of Robert G. Lee preached the sermon. And I, I discovered then where some of the terms and some of the language came from because I heard him refer to Ahab as a vile human toad. And, and Jezebel is the wicked witch of the ancients. I used that language too. I thought it was cool, you know. Um, the man came up to me after services and said, uh, we got the roads around here, the one I'm dying, you know, quit. And uh, so we then, we kind of hang around after services sometimes and make decisions. And uh, we kind of met among ourselves and we just wondered if you want to come back every Sunday. So that was two of the three men who were attending that day. This church was only about 15 members. And so I began and I started preaching every Sunday. Well, I learned from that church that sometimes you just feel a need because the body needs it. I mean, the man who had singing, his name was Brother Wood. I don't even know his first name. I just always refer to him as Brother Wood. I was at that church for about three years. He and I interacted every Sunday. And I asked Brother Wood one time, I said, Brother Wood, how'd you get started with singing? Well, he said, well, you know, I can't carry two in a bucket. But just one Sunday we got here, and it was kind of cold in the building, and there wasn't a lot of people here, and, you know, and they needed somebody to lead singing. And Miss Oki Biasi over here, now she could have had to sing, but you know, we can't do that. You know, because she's a music teacher there in elementary school. She could have done it, but... I couldn't carry a tune, so I just decided to open it up to the only song I knew, Beulah Land. And uh, we, I, I looked at Miss Oki and I said, Miss Oki, if you would, when I let the, when I let the book down, I'm going to get it up and I'm going to let it down. When I let the book down, if you'll start the song over there in your future, it sure would be nice. He said, we've been doing that ever since. And we had a repertoire of about six songs. I was saying, Beulah Land was one of them. I've reached the land of corn and wine. Where, okay, all right. I know we're not supposed to sing that wine word in the 
Church of the Christ. But he didn't know that because he grew up as Free Will Baptist and was converted. You know, so he just he decided that it was okay to sing that little phrase. But all he did was just commit to the need that was there. I, you know, I really wish, and do you realize how your ministers and your elders depend on some of you just saying, the need is there, I will do it. The need is there, I will do it. And it may be that you have other gifts, other natural talents that could equally be used in the church, but you're answering a need. So I say for most of our churches, and you know what happens? Sometimes you discover you have a gift that you didn't know you had. I, I knew I had gifts of administration, you know, and things of that nature as a teenager because, I, you know, I organized activities and that kind of thing. I really didn't know I had a capacity to speak. I, I really didn't know that. It was honed and developed by those opportunities that were given. Just with Brother Wood, he still couldn't lead singing very well, but he answered the call and he was our song leader. And he faithfully executed that role. But then number two, number two, Answer the opportunities others present to you. Sometimes the need is there, you just fill it. Other times you answer the opportunities other people give to you. You answer the opportunities. How many of you have ever watched Little House on the Prairie? Okay, good. A lot of you, we, we watch Little House on the Prairie all the time our girls are growing up. They memorize virtually every episode. Um, and... Sometimes when I think about gifts in the church, I ask myself, how did Pa Ingalls know his spiritual gift? You remember Pa Ingalls, right? And they all went to church. Everybody went to church, right, in the little village church there. So I, I want to help. How did Pa Ingalls understand his gift? Did some psychologist from Mankato come down and give him spiritual gifts and toys? No, no, not quite. It didn't happen that way. Floyd wasn't even in existence at that point, right? So we, we, we didn't have a whole lot of all that, you know? So I suspect here's the way it happened. Is that somebody asked him to help them on something. And he did it. He answered the opportunity. And Charles's gifts emerged when he answered the opportunity. That's how he knew. That's how everybody knew. I believe you understand your gift when you practice the one another passages of the New Testament. That's what I really think. Love one another, serve one another, be devoted to one another. And the list goes on and on and on of all the one another passages. You practice those one another passages by answering the opportunities that are presented to you by others and your gift emerges. You kind of know what that's going to be. This church where I grew up, I can think of another situation that was very similar to what I'm, I'm uh, uh, very similar to a situation that some of you probably encounter, where when I was about the same time, midway through my junior in high school, two youth deacons, the, the deacons over the youth program, came up to me and said. Um, Carlos, we need we, we want an we want an area youth rally, and we would like you and Al Jean Steele to organize it. And I was kind of dumbfounded. Here I was, 17 years old. And they said we want you to organize it. So Al Jean and I just kind of looked at each other. He was much taller than I was. I was looking, I looked up at him, and he looked down at me, and we said, "What do you think?" So we did it. And that was one other opportunity 
where the church gave me an opportunity, I answered that opportunity, and gifts emerged. Number three, accept the challenges. Accept the challenges. For how many of you, your first involvement in the church is when somebody asks you to do something that was outside your comfort zone? Raise your hands high. I want you to look. And look around. Look around. Keep your hands up. Look around. You see this? Right? Somebody asked you to do something that was outside your comfort zone. And then they thanked you and praised you for doing it. And the body of Christ was edified. It was built up. Then, number four. Affirm the ordinary. Affirm the ordinary. In this same church where I learned how to preach, the man who wrote the check and handed it to me every Sunday was Brother A.H. Bradley. Now, how would I know his initials? Well, because he signed the checks. A.H. Bradley. And so that's, that's kind of how I knew what was going on there. Well, Brother Bradley, um, he was a delightful, portly old fellow. You know what I mean by portly, you know, kind of big of girth. And, um, he also had a little tendency that every time he sat down for any length of time, he'd fall asleep. And that was most time during my sermons that he would do that. And he sat in the very, very back. Some of you may have heard me tell this story. I love this story about Brother Bradley. <laughs> well, Brother Bradley, when he would take, when he'd do his nap, sometimes his upper plate would bother him a little bit. And so before he'd snooze off, he'd take that upper plate out and just kind of lay it to his side, right there in the pew. One time, I don't know what I said in the sermon, but it startled him. And down came that arm that was right there on the back of that pew, and it just kind of kind of swept those teeth on the concrete floor all the way up to the front of the building. And there's Ms. Okibayasi, the unofficial song leader, right? You remember her? She looks down, she sees on the floor, and she, and she said to herself, and she told me later on, I think there's a Brother Bradley C. <laughs> I don't know how she knew there was Brother Bradley C. But she takes a tissue out of her purse, picks it up, and hands it back pew to pew, and eventually it reaches Brother Bradley who pops them back in. <laughs> this is a pretty ordinary church, guys. I <laughs> it's an ordinary church. And a lot of great work is done by really ordinary people. It's us. It's us. Ordinariness. Seven years ago, when I was teaching at Johnson, one of the favorite guest speakers who would come there from time to time, his name was Jim Ketchen. Jim came from a church up in Indiana, which is where a lot of the independent Christian churches were. And he came from that church, and he would come and he would deliver a lesson, and he did it. It became so popular that he did it at least once every other year. And the lesson was entitled, get this, Tables and Chairs. That was the title of the lesson, Tables and Chairs. And he said, I don't know anyone who does ministry who doesn't have to do tables and chairs a lot. And you know what he means by that, right? 
setting up tables and chairs, taking down tables and chairs, making sure that the auditorium is set up with chairs, making sure that the fellowship hall is set up with tables and chairs, making sure that the Bible classes are all set up and taken down with tables and chairs. And everybody has to do it, right? When I served at Johnson Bible College, which became Johnson University, we had a rule among ourselves. We called it, many hands make light work. That was the idea. We had a program there every summer called Senior Saints for the Smokies. And, and what it was is where for four weeks it was kind of like an encampment. And uh, senior saints signed up for one of four weeks and they would come there and be entertained and taught by the faculty. I mean, we literally entertained them. I was in a quartet, you know, and we did a lot of other things and I taught some classes. They'd be entertained by us during, um, they'd be taught by us during the day. Then they'd have some kind of excursion during the afternoon. And then, and during the evening, we usually had some kind of big entertainment that went on. And I was in plays. I was in all kinds of stuff that we did for them in the evenings. It was lots of fun. It was really a lot of fun. But you know, the only way that Johnson University was able to do that is because of the degree of volunteerism among the faculty. Every faculty member, every staff member at that school for four weeks was just as busy during that time as they were during the regular semester. And it was lots of tables and chairs. Lots of that. Lots of passing out plates. Lots of going and picking up plates and taking them to be bussed. Lots of busting tables. Lots of washing dishes. Lots of cooking food. Lots of just interacting with people. Helping them find their way around the campus. And these were, you know, people with post hole diggers. PhDs. Uh, who were circulating all around campus having all kinds of marvelous gifts and capabilities. But when it came to that time, we just did tables and chairs, and all of us did it. We have to affirm the ordinary. Affirm the ordinary. But then, number five, show the initiative. Show the initiative. I'm going to tell you about a woman named Dorothy. I met Dorothy in my ministry at the Darby Drive Church in Florence, Alabama, when I was there as the preacher. And the first time I met Dorothy, she came through the building in her wheelchair. She was stricken by rheumatoid arthritis, and it was severe. She had even had to withdraw from her teaching career because of it. And she was in a wheelchair that was mobile. She didn't have to, she didn't, it was electrically charged. Her hands were swiveled, uh, you know, shriveled. I mean, she, you know, she had just she was in the advanced stages of the disease when I met her. She was totally dependent on others to lift her into the chair and out of the chair. And she spent most of the time during her day in a great big king-sized bed in her home. But I got to I'll describe that bed here in just a moment. First time she met me, she said, "I just want you to know, no one is going to be praying harder for you during your sermon than I will be." I pray for you every time I hear you speak. I even pray for you at the time you speak when I'm not here hearing you speak. And she said, I have from the start. She said, I would love for you to come visit me, but I don't mean by that the way you hear other people asking you to come and visit them, as if you're just kind of required to come and visit because you're the preacher. I want you to come and I want to sit down and I want to encourage you. So whenever you need some encouragement... I'd love for you to just come and sit down with me at my bed and 
Let's share some things together. You talk about a beautiful invitation. I mean, that's a beautiful invitation. So I, I actually went to her home. The first time I went to her home and I saw her, she was there. She had a caregiver that stayed with her all the time. There she was, lying on her king-size bed, actually propped up on her king-size bed. It was a California king, too. I mean, this thing was big. And she had her office on both sides of her. On one side of the office was essentially a post office depot with cards and letters and pens and envelopes and stamps and any number of things that she needed. But on the other side was her library and her World Bible School materials. She had concordances and topical Bibles and Bible dictionaries and all kinds of things just kind of lined up right there to her side. Bibles in like three or four different translations and all the lessons of the World Bible School, at least the one she was working on at the time. World Bible School is a Bible correspondence course where they send Bible lessons to people all over the world. She had converted, I don't know exactly what the number was, but it was a lot. She converted several prisoners in the maximum security prison in the state of Alabama through the World Bible School. She could barely write, guys. When you got a note from Dorothy that was about that long, you knew it took her about an hour to write it. And she sent and graded World Bible School curricula to the prisoners. Well, that led to another ministry. A ministry she called for those precious beloved persons behind bars where she kept a list of their needs and then she distributed that list of needs along with a budget to all the Bible classes at the Darby Drive Church and everybody gave money. And she prepared a budget and she kept budget. She distributed the disbursements and the receipts and all that kind of thing. She made sure everybody was kept abreast of everything that was going on in the, the ministry for those precious beloved persons behind bars. And back during that time, you had pay phones in the prisons, and each prisoner had a certain amount of phone time. And it was a certain time during the evening. And those prisoners would be standing in line, and many times the phone never was hung up, because it was Dorothy reading scripture to those prisoners. One prisoner would come to the phone and she would read scripture, picking up with the scripture where she had left off with that particular prisoner the last time. She personalized it. There was hardly a dry eye that stepped away from that phone every time because sometimes those prisoners had no one else who was calling them and had no one else to call. But Miss Dorothy read scripture to them. Well, the news got around. And she told one of the young people that she knew was discouraged. One of the young people at the church, she said, call me sometime when you're discouraged. Well, he did. You know what she did? She read scripture to him and prayed for him. Do you know how many young people started calling her at about 11 o'clock at night? And she had a ministry of reading scripture and praying for young people at night. Lying in her bed. She couldn't get up. She could barely move her arms and her hands. She had one of those great big phones with the great big number pads that were about that big square. And she would just reach and touch and it would take her so long to dial a number that sometimes it disconnected on her before she could dial it. And she would just press the button and pick it up again and start going. 
Anytime I want to make an excuse about how hard my life is, about I've just got one arm, you know, I got a bad wing, right? I busted my head open. Man, I think of Dorothy. You're talking about somebody who showed the initiative. And then finally, number six. When you do all this, when you serve first the needs of the body, you answer the opportunities that come to you from others, you accept the challenges, you affirm the ordinary, and you show the initiative. Finally, number six, pay attention to and affirm what God does through you for others. Pay attention to and affirm what God does through you for others. I'll say it one more time. Pay attention to and affirm what God does through you for others. Because that's your contribution to the body. And it may just be your spiritual gift or gifts. Amen? Well, we're at a time when we're experiencing the great reset of our churches and there's been this great reinvestment of many people who were serving our churches before the pandemic who haven't reactivated their gifts. There's no excuse now, right? Because I've given you six ways of reactivating your gifts. So what are they? Let's rehearse them. What is number one? Tell me. What's number one? Serve first, the body. Okay, number two? Answer the opportunities others give you. Okay, number three? Accept the challenges. Okay, number four? Affirm the ordinary. Number five? Show the initiative. And number six? There you go. I heard it distinctly enough. That was a long point, wasn't it? I broke our cardinal rule of sermonizing, and I gave you a long point. And did, did you notice that there was not one alliteration in all these six? I just gave you six points, right? There are six ways that, honestly, if you do them, it's a way of reactivating your role in the body of Christ. It's really very simple. Would you, would you close with me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for those who have served you and touched our lives. May we do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand to sing a song that is very much a part of our tradition. It's a beautiful part of our tradition where at the end of every lesson we have an opportunity to ask ourselves, what difference does this make? What difference does this make? Not just the sermon, but any number of things that may have happened in this assembly or this weekend where you're thinking about the impact it might have. It's a, it's a time where most of us don't respond publicly. Most of us stand there and continue to sing the song, but the song is deeply meaningful and helps us to reflect upon our participation in the body of Christ. Let's do that as we stand to sing.